Let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time together. We're, we're glad to be together, Lord. As a church family, as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, it's good when we come together to worship, to pray for one another, to hear Your Word preached, to be instructed and to be edified in the faith and to be challenged to push ourselves further. God, I pray that uh, this day we would come to a better understanding of what it means to seek out friendship. We all need friends, Lord. And over the next couple weeks, I pray, Father, that we would get a picture of what it means to be not only a strong Christian friend ourselves, but to seek it out with those around us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, open up your Bibles to Psalm 55 and just kind of park it there. We're not going to turn there yet. But Psalm 55 and put your little uh, hand in there. And we'll be turning there in just a few moments. As you're turning there, I went ahead and uh, revised the title of this message as I sometimes do. Um, titles are always the thing I like to do last. And on Friday, I looked at Jeannie and she said, do you have a title? And I said, I think so. But sure enough, I changed it again. And so the title of this message is not uh, what you see on the bulletin. It's what you see in the handout. It is friendship with all its imperfections. Friendship with all its imperfections. There was an article this last week uh, out of the Sun uh, newspaper in the United Kingdom. It was an article by Harry Hawkins, and the title of it was Schools Ban Children making, from Making Best Friends. Once again, the title, Schools Ban Children from Making Best Friends. I wanted to read you an excerpt, if you don't mind. Teachers are banning school kids from having best pals so they don't get upset by fallouts. Instead, the primary pupils are being encouraged to play in large groups. Educational psychologist Gaynor uh, Butani said the policy has been used at schools in Kingston, southwest London, and Surrey. She added, quote, I've noticed that teachers tell children they shouldn't have a best friend and that everyone should play together. They are doing it because they want to save the child the pain of splitting up with their best friend. Russell Hobby of the National Association of Head Teachers confirmed some schools were adopting best friend bans. He said, I don't think it's widespread, but it's clearly happening. It seems bizarre. I don't see how you can stop people from forming close relationships. To that I say, really? <laughs> Banning best friends. That's what's happening in the United Kingdom right now in schools throughout England. Can you imagine banning best friends at a school? I mean, this sounds absolutely crazy. We, when, we, when we look at, it, look at this from uh, just a, a, a normal perspective, we would say this is ludicrous. I'm told that also in uh, New Jersey, is it? In New Jersey, there's currently a ban on hugging at one school. Not just Opposite sex hugging, mind you, but same sex hugging. So, you know, two young girls, sixth grade girls who are best friends, 
In the UK, they couldn't be best friends, but in America, they could. But in, the, in America, in New Jersey, they can't hug each other for fear of school punishment or discipline. This is crazy. Banning best friends, banning hugging. What's next in our culture? But you know, it doesn't take, um, it doesn't take a ban by a government for us to see what is happening in our culture today. As crazy as it sounds, it doesn't take a best friend ban to keep our culture from developing strong, healthy friendships. And over the past few weeks, actually over the past uh, two months, I've been fascinated by this because this topic's been on my mind for a while now. Over the past two months, I've had conversation after conversation after conversation with people both in and outside of Coast. I would say some ten people that I've had conversations with who are going through various struggles and challenges in their life. And they're, they're, they're dealing with marital issues. They're dealing with issues with their children, with issues of work, uh, with issues of relationships of all kinds, all shapes and sizes, of issues of financial matters, and so on and so forth. And what's interesting, even though the challenges are all different, one of the common denominators that I find in speaking with these people over the last couple of months, one of, the, one of the most common and fundamental denominators that they all have in common is that each of these people are lonely. All of them are lonely. Some of them have lots of friends. They have very few people with which to, to share their burdens. They have very few friends. Some of them have lots of friends, but very few friends that they would trust to share their burden. Loneliness is becoming rampant in our society, and it isn't merely that some don't have friends. In some cases, they do. Sometimes the loneliest soul is the person who has many friends and acquaintances, but few that are worth the title friend. On your outline there, the problem of loneliness is what we're addressing today or we might put it, or of having friends that are hardly worthy of the title. The problem of loneliness, or of having friends that are hardly worthy of the title. We're often surrounding ourselves with the wrong kinds of people. I've given us some examples of these kinds of friends from the Proverbs. Proverbs 11, verse 9, says the hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor. Think about your friends for a moment. Take a moment, actually. Take a moment and write down one, two, or three of your best friends. There's no ban on it yet at Coast. One, two, or three of your best friends. Go ahead and jot their name down on your outline. The people in your life who you would say, this is the person that I turn to. These are the two or the three people that I turn to when I need a friend. Go ahead and write that down. Now ask yourself the question, is this a person who is worthy of the title friend? Or are they more like what we see in Proverbs 11.9? The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor. Here we're speaking about the kind of friend who's constantly tearing you down. It's funny how people surround themselves with, with people like this. It baffles me. 
I know I did as a kid in junior high. I would hang out with the, the most rude, some of the most sarcastic, some of the most just, just constantly negativity coming out of their mouth. But because they were kind of cool or kind of hip, I liked hanging out with them. But here we see in Proverbs, hey, the one who's tearing us down, the hypocrite, with his mouth destroys his neighbor. That's not a friend. Proverbs 22, 24, and 25 says, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your own soul. Are your friends angry? Are they bitter people? Are they people with whom always have an axe to grind? Are always in an argument? Are always negative? Are always debating? Proverbs 25.19 Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. I've had a bad tooth. I've not had a foot out of joint, but man, that bad tooth, all you can do is think about it, right? All you can do is think about that tooth that hurts. And if you're turning to an unfaithful person, which is to say a person who tears you down, a person who's constantly angry, and yet those are the kinds of people you go to as friends, those are the kinds of people you've listed down on your outline there, not going to be very satisfying when you turn to them. You're not going to walk away edified. You're not going to walk away strengthened. And so, we're lonely. We may have friends, but we're lonely. And we're, we're looking for something to fill the void. And so we try to fill it with anything we can find. And in many cases, in our culture today, <clears throat> we fill it with self-absorption. We fill it with selfishness, really. In our culture today in the West, we, we just entertain ourselves to death, don't we? we? We go to movies, we invest ourselves in TV shows, we invest in social media. It's interesting that in all three of these things, movies, TV shows, social media, it's all about someone else's life, right? It's always about someone else's life. It's not about usually facing what's going on in here. I, I kind of took a, a, a Facebook hiatus uh, about three or four months ago, and it was really good that I did because I was I was on that far, on that thing far too much, and for like about two or three months I was I hardly had even checked it, and I had uh, people checking in saying, "Hey, you're not on Facebook anymore," and I thought to and I just it it almost didn't even dawn on me that I wasn't on this this social media site, and as I look back over the last two or three months, I thought that's funny because my life was a whole lot more healthier by not constantly immersing myself in drama that wasn't happening in here in my own heart. Not to say we don't want to be connected. There's, there's, social media is a tool. It's a tool. And it can actually enhance friendships in some ways. But in other ways, it can be so destructive. And it can be an escape for those who are failing to deal with the loneliness of their heart. I've, been, I've, I've watched as a few friends of mine, uh, one in particular in high school, he, uh, he, wrote us a, he wrote us a message last year, and he wrote a message to all his Facebook friends. He had a lot of Facebook friends, and he sent a message out, and it said, it isn't you, it's Facebook. Goodbye. 
and, uh, and, he, and he deactivated his account. And, uh, and we, just, we all got a good laugh out of it, but my friend made a good point. He, he says, look, it's not you, it's, just, it's Facebook, and I, I, just, I need to focus on my marriage, on my family, on what's happening in here. What are you filling it with? Are you lonely? Or do you have friends that are hardly worthy of the title? Are you filling it with movies, TV shows, Facebook? Are you filling it with work, men in particular? Are you filling it with the quest for success? A workaholic rarely finds satisfaction in that. Ecclesiastes on your outline, chapter 4, 7 and 8. Then I returned, Solomon writes, and I saw vanity under the sun. There's one alone, without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there's no end to all his labors. Nor is his eye satisfied with riches. Yet he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. turning for satisfaction? Are you lonely? Where are you turning? Are you turning to entertainment, self-absorption in someone else's life? Are you turning to work, to the quest for success? Why is this person alone? Solomon says they're alone because they have no one to share it with. For whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? Without relationship, Solomon says, it's all for naught. You might say, but Neil, um, I like being alone. I like being alone. Because, you know, I've been burned before. On your outline. But I've been burned before. Neil, I've I've put myself out there. I've tried to befriend others. I've tried to share my life and and to open up and and to share both the the highs and the lows, the struggles and the joys, and and I, I got burned by a friend. I got burned by a family member. Perhaps there was a relationship in your past. In fact, I'm quite sure there was. I'm quite sure there was a relationship in your past where a family member or a friend treated you poorly and you lost the ability to trust, to open up, to let someone be a friend. Job understood that. We read in Job 19, beginning in verse 13, he writes, My brothers are far from me. My acquaintances completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed. My close friends forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house, my maidservants, count me as a stranger. I'm an alien in their sight. All my close friends abhor me. And those whom I have loved turned against me. Have pity on me. Have pity on me. O you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. No one, no one like Job, isn't there? No one like Job in Scripture. He lost it all. God allowed it all to go away. Family, riches, property, friends, all of it was gone in a click of an, in a heartbeat. And Job responds and he pours out his heart and says, Look, I've got nothing left. I put my heart and my soul into these things and now it's all gone. My friends abhor me. They hate me. My family's turned against me. My brothers are far from me. 
What else do I have? And when love and mercy run dry, we put up our defenses, don't we? Our hearts grow calloused to even the idea of receiving genuine love and friendship again. In time, we start to question the intentions of everyone, don't we? We question the intentions of everyone when our heart gets cold. We assume the worst in people. And our wounded heart, it cries out like Micah. In Micah 7, at the bottom of your outline, Woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, and there's no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. The faithful man has perished from the earth. There's no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net. The prince, he asks for gifts. The judge, he seeks a bribe. The great man, he utters evil desires. So they scheme together. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. So the prophet cries out. And you say, well, see? There you go. There you go, Neil. Micah said it. He told us. Don't trust in a friend. Don't put confidence in a companion. So why are you speaking on friendship? The Bible just said... Watch out for these things. There's my justification to be alone, to be hard, to be calloused. There's my rationale right there, Micah 7. That's why I have no friends. Hardly. Hardly. You see, the Lord's words through Micah were a concession, a sad concession for the times in which Micah was living. In that day, the people of Israel were entrenched in sin and idolatry. There was hardly a righteous man left when Assyria came down from the north and destroyed Israel. And Micah's words attest to those great days of evil. Micah's words are hardly, hardly to be be taken as a prescription for Christian living, but rather as a diagnosis of the problem before us. And that problem is that we desperately need friendship. And good friends are hard to find. No one has learned this lesson more than Jesus. On your outline on the back side, no one understands betrayal more than Jesus. No one understands betrayal more than Jesus. In Matthew 26, verse 49, we catch the tail end of Jesus' life. And it says, Immediately He, speaking of Judas, went up to Jesus, and He said, Greetings, Rabbi. And He kissed Him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus. And they took him. Jesus called twelve men to be his friends. And yet one of them, whom Jesus called a friend, conspired to have him killed. It would have been understandable had the Pharisees conspired to kill Jesus. And they did. And that was understandable as we read about it in the Gospels. It would have been understandable to read that the religious leaders conspired to kill Jesus. And they did. But what was almost unfathomable, both to Jesus and what should be to us, 
is that Jesus called into His inner circle twelve men, and one of those men, over a period of three years of Jesus' investment in His life, one of those men turned on Him, betrayed Him, and gave Him over to be crucified. A thousand years prior to that moment, David, his words are quite apropos. I asked you to turn to Psalm 55. Take a look at verse 12 of Psalm 55 and consider David's words that really draw out what Jesus must have felt like. Look at verse 12, Psalm 55. David writes, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, for then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. Jump down to verse 21. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Think you know betrayal, huh? Jesus knew betrayal. Not only did Judas turn him over, but on the night of his death, it wasn't just one of the twelve who abandoned Jesus. It was all of them. Judas was the one who conspired against Him. Judas was the one who brought all the religious leaders. Judas was the one who ultimately betrayed Him. But moments later, all the rest of the twelve disciples had abandoned Jesus. Three years of friendship. Three years of investment into their lives. Three years of being instructed by the Son of God. And those twelve men abandoned Him in a heartbeat. I know how I'd react to that. (laughs) I'd say, forget you guys. If I were Jesus, and I invested three years of my life in twelve men, And at the end of those three years, at the time that I needed them the most, all 12 of them scattered, I'd say, hey, nice knowing you. Wouldn't you? You'd be thinking to yourself, what did I do the last three years? How How much of my life have I poured into you? How much investment of my time, my resources, my energy? How much time did we spend teaching one another? How much time do we spend praying with one another? How much time do we spend crying and laughing with one another? And in the time I need you most, you leave. I know what I would say. I would say, fine. Forget it. And yet, Jesus spoke of betrayal, His betrayal, and His death a whole lot differently. Look at John 15. Turn over to John 15. Jesus spoke of His betrayal and death a whole lot differently. 
John 15, beginning in verse 12. Jesus says, This is My commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus chose friendship with all its imperfections. Jesus chose to remain a friend to the very ones whom He knew would betray Him. Now think about that for a moment. Jesus chose to remain a friend to those whom He knew would betray Him. Imagine just, just for a moment that uh, next week, all right, seven days from now, see that person at the top of your list? Who'd you put at the top of your list? Don't say their name. Look at them, alright, right now. You see them at the top of your list, that friend that you uh, put a note down on? One week from now, that friend is going to betray you. They're going to betray a confidence. They're going to do something against you that is harmful, that is wicked, that is wrong, and that is going to cause you great pain. How's your relationship go the next week? How's your relationship with them going to go over the next week? Is it going to be uh, healthy and strong? You going to be excited to meet with them? You going to go out to the to the movies and hang out, go out for coffee, and and just pretend like everything's grand, knowing full well that in one week your friend is going to harm you deeply? Not me. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to avoid that person. I'm going to probably become bitter and frustrated and angry and think to myself, why are they going to betray me? Why are they going to do this? Why are they going to hurt me? Wouldn't you withdraw from them? Wouldn't you avoid them? You might even start to despise them even before they betrayed you. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. Jesus has pursued relationship with us despite knowing that we would betray Him. On your outline, Jesus has pursued relationship with us despite knowing that we would betray Him. He knew we would betray Him. And that full awareness of our treachery, with that full awareness of our treachery, He still died for us. He still died for those who would betray Him. And what Jesus did, we can call it a great many things. We can call it sacrificial love. And it is. We can call it total selflessness. And it is. We can call it limitless mercy. And it is. And all of these would be fine descriptions of it. But I want us to consider one final characterization of Jesus' death for friends who would betray Him. And it is persistent relationship. Persistent relationship. That's what Jesus did. He knew what was good for us. He knew what was good for us. And so even if, even though He knew of our betrayal, knowing what was good for us, He persisted and continued forward and sought relationship with us. Even if it meant Him enduring great pain. 
I've mentioned before that Doug and I, uh, we go out to breakfast on Wednesdays. And uh, it's a good time. We, uh, we'll head on out to McDonald's and uh, get, a, get a sausage egg McMuffin. Man, those are good. Mm. And, uh, but it's funny. Every Wednesday we meet. But uh, come Tuesday night, I'm, a, I'm somewhat forgetful. I'm, 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 for, for some reason, this Wednesday morning meeting, I'm very forgetful about it. And uh, come Tuesday night, I'll be sitting there with my wife, and we'll be talking or eating dinner or watching TV or whatnot, and all of a sudden, I'll get a, a late night text, and it'll be from Doug saying, hey, are we on tomorrow? And I'll go, oh man, I totally forgot. And because, you know, I, I don't have an iPhone, I don't even have a smartphone, you know, so I barely know how to text. But, uh, but Doug, oh, he always reminds me. He's always the one reminding me about our Wednesday morning get-togethers. Now, Doug could get put off by my forgetfulness. He could say in his heart, well, wait a minute, Neil never emails me. Neil never texts me. Neil never reminds me about Wednesday morning breakfast. Why do I always have to remind him? And one day, if he wanted to, he could willfully decide in his heart, I'm not going to text him. I'm not going to remind him. I'm not going to email him. And I'm going to see if Neil even notices that we missed Wednesday morning breakfast. But he doesn't do that. He's never done that. Because you see, Doug has a higher perspective about it. About that meeting together. He knows that to persistently pursue a relationship with me and I with him is of greater value than of being offended by the fact that I often don't pursue him for that Wednesday morning. I forget about it. I, I'm, I'm a dad. I got two kids. I'm trying to juggle them. And I got one on the way. He's got one on the way. He'll, he'll soon learn what it means to be a forgetful dad. I forget about it. And Doug could get put off and say, fine, forget it, Neil. If you're not going to remember, then I'm not going to do it. But he doesn't. Instead, he sends that text. He sends that email. And he persistently pursues a relationship with me because he knows it's good for him and it's good for me. Jesus persistently pursued a relationship with us because He knows it's good for us. So you have a choice. You can avoid friendships because they're imperfect. Or you can embrace and seek out biblical friendships with all their imperfections. You can let past hurts callous your view of the benefits of strong and godly friendships. Or you can adopt the ideology of Jesus to seek relationships with persistence, knowing that it's good for you and good for the one you pursue. I can't tell you how many times I've told the older men of this church, and I'll say it again, I tell the older men of the church every chance I can get it. I say it to the elders, I say it to the men's Bible study group, I'll say it again. Older men, pursue relationship with the younger men of Coast. They won't ask you for it, but they need it. I need it. They need it. And again, we won't ask you for it. We won't text you for it. And we know you're older, so you probably wouldn't get a text anyway. 
Glenn, are you texting? You are texting. Fantastic. I'm going to text you this week and see if you get it. Older and wiser men pursue a relationship with a younger man in the church. Why? Because it's good for them. They won't ask you for it, but it's good for them. And it's good for you. When Jesus was walking in Galilee, He took note of the pulse of the people. And what He saw troubled Him. Families were out of joint. Friendships were strained. Everyone was out for themselves. The hearts of many had grown cold. And even, and even though God had broken in, God had broken in to Galilee, to Israel. He had broken in in the person of Jesus Christ. He had broken in to restore relationship with His people. Even though He had done that, the people had forgotten what relationships looked like. On your outline there in the middle, Matthew chapter 11, verse 16. This is what Jesus said about it. He said, But to what shall I liken this generation? And He's speaking of a generation now, mind you, without trust and without relationship. He says, To what shall I liken this generation? It is like children who sit in the marketplace and call to their companions, to their friends, and they say, We played the flute. And you didn't dance. We mourned. And you didn't lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. It's a hard passage. I'm sure many of you read that and you think, I don't understand what Jesus is driving at. Let me put it in some other words. It's as if Jesus is saying to the generation in Galilee, it's as if He's saying this, look, when there was reason to celebrate together, you didn't join in the celebration. When there was reason to mourn together, you didn't join with the mourners. Instead, you stood back from a distance and you questioned everyone's intentions. You suspected everyone had an agenda. John the Baptist, he didn't feast. He didn't drink wine. And yet you questioned his intentions and called him a demon. God's own Son, He came and He ate and He drank like the rest of us. But that didn't satisfy you either. Instead, you called him a glutton and a drunk. You spent your whole life, your whole life, questioning the intentions of others, refusing to draw near to them in any fashion, whether in times of joy or times of want. And where, Jesus says, where has it gotten you? It's gotten you nowhere. In fact, some of the very people whose intentions you question, some of the very people toward whom you show skepticism, are the very people whom God might use to minister to you. Like John the Baptist. Like Jesus. Yet you won't let anyone in. 
You aren't letting anyone in. Instead, you question their intentions. You say, well, he's, he's got a demon. Well, he's a, he's a sinner. Jesus concludes, but wisdom is justified by her children. Which is to say, look at the product. Look at the product of the man of God, of the woman of God. Look at the totality of their life. Look at their family. Look at how they carry themselves, how they conduct themselves. Look at their integrity. And ask yourself, why do I keep questioning everyone's intentions? Why do I have such a heart of skepticism, a calloused heart? Why can't I open up my heart and let someone in to minister to it? In that day, it was John the Baptist and Jesus. Today, it might be an elder of the church, an older woman who could be a mentor, one of you moms. On your outline there, if you choose to look for the worst in others, you will certainly find it. You will. If you choose to look for the worst in me, you will, you will find it. But Jesus saw the worst in us and yet loved us and sought relationship with us. But Jesus saw the worst in us and yet loved us and sought relationship with us. And so let us open our hearts to one another in friendship. Accept the love and counsel of a friend that you so desperately need. Might you get hurt? Might you one day be betrayed? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. But if that day comes, perhaps it will draw you ever closer to the one who was betrayed in full. In the meantime, we need each other. Solomon writes, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And so this is, uh, this is elementary. And for Coast, we're, we're kind of more of a, a, a teaching-oriented church. We like to delve into theology and doctrine. We go through books like Daniel and Romans. And, uh, and then we come to a message like this and we say, my goodness, Neil, that sure was wimpy. But no, this is so fundamental. You need friends. You need strong Christian friends. And I have a suspicion that many of you are lonely. You have a lot of friends on Facebook. You have a lot of people that you would call a friend. But very few who are worthy of the title. And so you have one of two choices. You can let your heart grow cold, question the intentions, grow skeptical, and look for the worst in everyone. Or you can say, you know what? Hey, betrayal might come. Hurt might come. But my Lord experienced that. And so I would rather open up my heart Invest in the life of another believer. Receive that investment back. And see what God does of it. In the coming weeks, in the coming week, I want to discuss real Christian friendship 
And I want to discuss next week qualities of what you ought to be as a friend and what you ought to look for in your friendships with others. In the meantime, we need to remember this. Let us persist in finding relationship, in deep spiritual friendship, and to do what it takes to keep them strong and vibrant. Persistence rarely feels natural. It's hard to go out on a limb and say, hey, I need you to invest in me, and I want to invest in you. That, that's, that's rare, and it's hard, and it's awkward at times. But I'll tell you, with persistence comes great reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that You would remind us of the importance of Christian friendship. Now, Father, uh, I know, because I've spoken with many, that, uh, that we're a lonely culture. We've got many friends on, at face value. It would appear that way. But Lord, so many of our hearts are craving a little bit more that young men would be ministered to by an older man in the church, that younger women would be reached out by an older woman in the church, and that there would be a reciprocal relationship, of course, Lord. We, we crave those things. We want those things. We ask, Lord, that You'd help us to be intentional about it. I pray that if there's someone here today who's lonely, who needs a friend, that they would be brave. And that they would reach out to someone in the church or a Christian friend whom they admire, whom they appreciate their integrity, and whom they want to seek their counsel and their camaraderie and their friendship. Lord, help us to be bold and intentional and ask for friendship. Help us to ask for friendship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.